Well, thank you again for the wonderful music. Thank you for your faithfulness, <coughs> your kindness, very nice room, wonderful basket of goodies, great meals, many acts of kindnesses given to me at the table and other places. And I appreciate that so much. I uh, really like your church. If I moved to this area, I don't think I'd visit another church. I'd just show up the first Sunday I was here and say, if you'll take me, I'd like to be part of the Canaan Baptist Church. You have a great pastor. He loves you. He loves the Lord. He loves his family. <coughs> I go some places. The preacher spends the whole meeting telling me how bad his members are. And by the time I leave, I feel really sorry for his members. But the preacher loves you and is so excited what the Lord is doing here. And I've never preached at a, a meeting where I felt the people were more prepared for revival, for the work of God than I have here. And never, I've been places that maybe as good of a percentage of Sunday morning crowd come back Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday, I don't think any better. And so I commend you and I thank you. The preacher said there's an offering I thank you for that. Whatever it is, it is more than I deserve and less than my wife would spend on the grandchildren. <laughs> you cannot get my wife to spend money on herself. But when it comes to the grandkids, she makes Congress look fiscally conservative. <laughs> so I, I enjoy it, appreciate it. I'll be thinking of and praying for this church and the ongoing work of revival Amen. that I got to be a part of for a little bit. Amen. Psalm 19, stand with me if you wouldn't mind. Verses 1 through 6 tell us about a revelation in the stars. You don't have to have a Bible to know there's a God. You just have to look up at night. Verses 7 through 11 tell us about a revelation in the scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect. Amen. Hey, if something's perfect and you change it, what do you make it? So don't mess with your Bible. Great, uplifting, wonderful verses. But beginning in verse 12, we're given a revelation about sin. I've got at least three other messages I would prefer to preach tonight. In fact, if I were doing what I thought, I would say I don't think this church particularly needs this message. But the very best I know, this is where the Spirit of God has me for this evening. Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret sins. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. 
Lord, do the work you wish to do. Use me as an instrument. I present myself the very best I know, yielded and willing to be pliable. Go whatever direction to do whatever you want done. So help us, please. Meet with us. Bind Satan. You said nobody's going to spoil the strong man's house if he doesn't bind the strong man first. So keep he in the fallen, unclean spirits that do his bidding from interfering with anything you wish to do. And help us to be very open, very receptive, very obedient. We'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. If I were constructing a series of sermons for a revival meeting, I would put this sermon near the beginning. I would reason we got to deal with sin. And we get rid of the sin, then we can understand walking in the Spirit, having a victorious Christian life having our prayers answered. But if you look at the model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, first it says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Praise to God. Then it says, Thy kingdom come. Asking God's work to go forward. Thy will be done, asking that we and those in this world be subjected and obedient to the will of God. And it says, give us this day our daily bread. And then it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'd put that first. Preacher friend of mine was having company the next day. And he wanted to help and his wife said, it's fine. I got it. It's all right. Let me do something. Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I? No, no, it's fine. So he decided he would dust their big dining room table. And he got out the cloth and he got out the pledge and he wiped and dusted. And man, it smelled perfect and it sparkled. And he was so happy with what he had done. And the next morning, he walked into the dining room, and as the sunlight now streamed through the windows, he saw streaks and dust and places he'd missed all over the table. His wife said, Johnny, I told you not to do that. And then she said this, you always dust in the daylight. The daylight of God's word. The conviction of God's spirit been evident in many of our lives. And now in that daylight, God, I believe, is going to reveal some things to us. Our passage tells us there are degrees of sin. It talks about secret sins. I used to think that meant a sin that I hide from you and you don't know is in my life. But it says, who can understand his errors? That is, who can understand his own errors? A secret sin is a sin that is a sin 
of which I am unaware. That is, I don't even know it's wrong. My friend Brother Chapel was in Australia. The uh, deputy governor of one of the states of New Guinea was there at the meeting. And Brother Chapel and David Gibbs and the host pastor met with him in the office and he got saved. The emphasis of that meeting was on the family. And after he got saved, he said, I am so glad I'm saved and I'm so glad for this teaching on the family. Now I will be a better husband to both of my wives. <laughs> Meant well. Now God never intended that. We say God didn't make Adam and Steve, he made Adam and Eve, and he did, but he didn't make Adam and Eve and Yvonne and Yvette. One man, one woman for life, always God's plan. Secret sins. God has and God may tonight bring to light some things in our lives that displease him that we've thought were fine for a long time. And then it talks about presumptuous sins. I looked that up and everybody pretty well just says that means something you know is wrong, but you do it anyway. And I could not find a lot of real solid Bible on presumptuous sins. What I did find was really interesting. See, I, the commentaries did not help me, so I was reduced to studying the Bible. Now look what it says in Numbers chapter 15 and verse 30. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, <clears throat> the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that there is no sacrifice for a presumptuous sin. I had a teacher in college. College I went to was unfortunately non-denominational. So they had some Calvinists, they had uh, some, they had an Arminian. I had an Arminian teacher. He thought you'd lose your salvation. Now, you don't have to be real smart to figure that out. God said, when you got saved, and by the way, if you don't know you're on your way to heaven tonight, you can know that before you walk out of here. And I can't imagine anything more presumptuous than knowing that you're a sinner, knowing that the only way to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that God loves you and wants to save you and offers you the gift of eternal life and says in the Bible, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And you're saying, oh, I'll do it later. But this uh, teacher that I had, this Arminian teacher, said there was no offering for presumptuous sins. And he believed that meant if you know it's wrong and you do it anyway, you've lost your salvation forever. No atonement for presumptuous sins. Now, there is no offering in the Bible for presumptuous sin. If that is true, 
that any time you do something you know you shouldn't do, you do it anyway, you're not saved, then I am not saved. And you are not saved. And nobody is saved. So I thought, I've already studied the Bible. And I thought, is there any example in the Bible of a presumptuous sin? Well, I thought about David. Now, here's where David starts. The Bible says it was the time when kings do battle, and David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now, that's interesting. He didn't say, I'm going to sit this one out. He just said, I'll go later. Y'all go now. I'll catch up with you later. He didn't say, I'm going to stop soul winning. He just said, well, I won't go this week. I'll be back later. He didn't say, I'll never read the Bible again. He just said, well, I'm not going to read it today, but I'll catch it up tomorrow. He didn't say, I'm going to stop tithing. He just said, well, you know, I can make it up when I get back from vacation. And if I miss a week here or there, it won't matter too much. So while he's home and he shouldn't have been home. He looks over from his palace rooftop and sees a woman bathing herself. She's very attractive. And he said, who is that? And the servants tried to help him. They said, that is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's married, David. David says, get her for me. You know the rest of the story. Now, would you say David calling that married woman to his palace to become immoral with her, would you say that was presumptuous? Well, after a little while, she finds out a baby's on the way. Her husband's gone. He's fighting. David said, that's all right, I can take care of that. And he calls Uriah home. I want to hear about the battle. Tell me how things are going. Oh, by the way, here's some good food. Go home. Have a nice night with your family. That way you're going to think it's Uriah's baby. But Uriah doesn't go home. He stays out in the gate of the king's house and the servants tell David that servants have a better idea what's going on than we give them credit for sometimes and he says that's all right I can take care of that and he gets Uriah drunk and he gives him some more food he says go on home enjoy the night with your family but Uriah had more character drunk than David did sober. I thank God that I speak with cell phones more than y'all. Apparently I didn't turn mine down yet today, but it's in my pocket. I'll fix it. In the church, I'd rather speak five words uninterrupted by cell phones. But David says, that's okay. I can take care of that. And he tells Joab to put Uriah in the fiercest part of the fighting. And he said, when everybody's fighting at their highest level, you have everybody else leave. 
<clears throat> don't blow retreat, just everybody's leave. And everybody left, and Uriah stayed, and he died. Would you say that's presumptuous? So I wonder if David is ever forgiven. Now, for one year, about, he sits on the throne, he judges others, he makes no effort to get right with God or man. Till Nathan shows up. Points his bony finger right into the face of his king and says, thou art the man. And David says, I've sinned. And the Spirit of God gave David words, these words inspired by the Spirit of God, about how David dealt with God about that presumptuous sin. It's in Psalm 51. I want you to look there beginning at verse 16. Now he said, wash me, cleanse me, purge me. He said, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me against thee. The only have I sinned. I've done this great evil. And then he says this in verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice. Else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. And as I read the scripture, here's what the Spirit of God leads David to tell us. Hey, there are a lot of offerings and a lot of sacrifices in the Bible. You touch an unclean body, you sit outside the camp for a few days, you commit this sin, you do this, and give this offering, give that offering, but not when it's a presumptuous sin. You can't get by with routine behavior. You cannot get by with a superficial treatment. God says, when you did wrong and you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway, you better come and deal with me yourself. A broken, contrite spirit. I'm helping a pastor friend of mine in another state. A missionary out of his church has been found to have been engaging in inappropriate behavior for a very long time. The pastor loves him, and the pastor loves his family, and the pastor is brokenhearted, and the pastor is eager to do all that he can to help him, but the man keeps making excuses. He keeps minimizing his sin. He keeps telling part of the story and not the truth, and there is no hope for that man or any man like that until he says, I surrender. Anything you want. All I care about now is getting this sin out of my life and being clean and being right with God. But our text goes on. Talks about secret sins. 
Then it talks about presumptuous sins. Then it says, let them not have dominion over me. And it says, then, if I'm kept back from presumptuous sins, then, if they don't have dominion over me, then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. We start controlling sin. We end being controlled by sin. We start feeling like we can manage it. It ends up managing us. David knew better. Should have stayed home. Shouldn't have stayed home. Should have gone to battle. David knew better. Shouldn't have called Bathsheba to his palace. David knew better. Shouldn't have murdered somebody to cover up his sin. What happened? He had a presumptuous sin. It had dominion over him. And it led him to the great transgression. More than any man in the Bible. The scripture says of Samson that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. God used Samson. God empowered Samson. Samson did things no other character in the Bible has done. Kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. But every time you find Samson doing something, he does it from self-motivation. Avenging. The fact that the Philistines took his wife. Finally, it's gone 20 years. He's a Nazarite. He's had a vow never to touch a dead body. We know he did that. Never to drink alcohol. We presume that he did that. We don't know that. And never to cut his hair. And he takes up with a woman named Delilah. Not a godly woman. Samson didn't care about obeying God, about having godly women. He wanted to marry a, a woman of the Philistines earlier on. And his parents said, well, isn't there a daughter among, among the people of God that you like? He said, nah, get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Presumptuous. And Delilah said, hey, how come you're so strong? Tell me the secret of your strength. Well, he said, if you bound me with brand new ropes, ropes that never been used, I'd be as weak as any man. So she did. And she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon thee. And he jumped up and he popped the ropes like they were thin cotton threads. And he went out to fight the Philistines. And she cried and she said, I thought you loved me. You lied to me. You didn't tell me the truth. Well, he said, if you take bowstrings, green withs, the Bible says. Strings to be used on a bow to launch an arrow. Very strong. If you do that, I'll be as weak as any other man. And she bound him with bowstrings. And she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon thee. And he jumped up and he popped those like they were nothing and went out to fight the Philistines. Now, I'm not real smart. But by this time, I would have suspected that Delilah did not have my best interest at heart. 
and all that stuff. All those attitudes, all those behaviors that the devil uses, doesn't any of it have our best interest at heart? Why didn't you tell me? I thought you loved me. Well, he said, if you tie the, take the seven locks of my head and kind of weave them together. Tie them up to something. I'll be as weak as any other man. And she ties them up to the beam of the house and he jumps up and pulls the beam out with his head and he goes to fight the Philistines. And finally he says, well, here's the deal. No razors have been on my head. And I suspect he thereby gives her the ability to break the last part of his Nazarite vow. She cuts his hair while he's sleeping. Samson, the Philistines are upon thee. You know what he said? I shall arise as at other times. And he wist not that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And they take Samson. They poke out his eyes. They tie him to a kind of a bar that pushes and grinds one stone upon another, a millstone to grind meal. The work that's usually done by a dumb animal. And there's the hero of Israel. There's the savior of the people of God. There is a great warrior and he's grinding grain like an animal. What happened to Samson? I'll tell you what happened. He had presumptuous sins. After a while, they had dominion over him and they led him to the great transgression. I've chosen 12 of you. Tonight, before it's all over, one of you is going to deny me. Ah, uh, Lord, wait, 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 before you say that as a blanket statement, don't forget I'm here. It's me, Peter. See, Peter had great confidence in himself, and he said, Lord, I would never deny you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows two times in the morning, you will have denied me three times this night. What is the right response if the Lord Jesus says that to us? Oh, Lord, please deliver me. Help me. What can I do? Strengthen me. Show me how to avoid such a terrible thing. I don't want to deny you. Peter said, oh, no, Lord. No, he said, if all men denied you, everybody in the whole world denied you. I would never deny you. You know what Peter said? Peter said, I'm the best Christian in the world. I'm the last person that would ever do that. I will stand fast if all the world denies you. You know the story. You were Jesus. No, no, I, I, I wasn't. Yeah, you were. No, I, I never met him, never heard of him. Yeah, you were. And he takes an oath and says, I never knew him. And just then the rooster crows. And Peter looks over 
And he sees the Lord Jesus being held for trial. And Jesus looks at Peter. I wonder what that look was like. What happened? What reduced? One of the most aggressive and one of the most faithful and one of the most loved inner circle disciples of the Lord Jesus to denying his Lord three times to when the crucifixion was over, saying, I am no longer going to be a servant of Christ. I'm going back fishing. Jesus, after he was resurrected, said, go tell my disciples and Peter. You know why? Because Peter didn't consider himself a disciple. And Jesus knew that. And he said, you make sure he knows I called him by name. I just didn't say all the disciples. What made him do that? I'll tell you what happened. Presumptuous sins had dominion over him and led him to the great transgression. This is an awful story. I'll be delicate. Before Facebook, there was a thing called MySpace. By the way, stay away from chat rooms. My pastor says no teenager needs a smartphone. He'll tell the parents when they're in trouble, take their phone away. You know what most parents say? Oh, no, I, I just could not do that to them. That's up to you, but don't you blame my preacher for whatever trouble comes in your kid's life when you wouldn't take his advice. And don't you blame this preacher and don't you blame God and don't you blame this local church and don't you blame independent Baptists when you are given godly counsel from the word of God by a man of God and you choose to ignore it and trouble comes. Oh, there's something called MySpace. And this guy and this girl met each other. They started talking and the conversation got real bad. They're both Christians. Never seen each other. Just know each other on the internet. They, it's really bad. And after a while, he says, I want a picture of you. And she sends a picture. And after a while, she says, I want a picture of you. And he doesn't send it. And he doesn't send it. And he doesn't send it. And finally he sends the picture and she opens it up and she looks to see that she has been corresponding in the most vile manner imaginable with her father. That man was a preacher. I used to preach for him every year. He's my friend. He's still my friend. He was a drunk and he got saved and God changed his life. And he started a good church and he did good things for God. What in the world happened? I'll tell you what happened. Presumptuous sins had dominion over him. And then they led him to the great transgression. I got an email years ago. Great preacher. Some of you know his name. Said, uh, in such and such a year I had my stomach removed. He said, the doctor prescribed for my pain that I drink a glass of wine before I went to bed. 
Now, I understand. When I was a boy in a GRB church, we had an, a covenant we'd read together when we took the Lord's Supper. And we agreed to abstain from the use of alcohol as a beverage. I understand there is a medicinal purpose. But can I tell you what? If the doctor tells you to drink a glass of wine before you go to bed at night, ask him if there's an alternative. I don't want wine in my house. I don't want it around my kids. I don't want my grandkids to be able to get it. I don't want to go to the grocery store and buy it. Can you imagine buying a bottle of wine and giving a tract to the attendant? If you do, give one from some other church. He said, in 2001, I was arrested for public drunkenness. I've apologized to those with knowledge of that incident and other incidents. I'm no longer blameless. He resigned from the many boards he was on. He stopped preaching around the country. Now, I had a suspicion. It was later confirmed by one who loved him and was out of his church and called him his preacher. Here's what happened. He drank the wine as prescribed by the doctor. And he liked the way it made him feel. So he started drinking the wine when it wasn't bedtime. Started drinking the wine when it wasn't medicinal. And when this incident came to light, they found all kinds, not just wine, but all kinds of liquor bottles in his car. He had fought the bootleggers as a young man. He had stood strong against sin. He had been a great preacher and a great separatist. He had built a great church. What happened to him? I'll tell you what happened to him. Presumptuous sins had dominion over him, and they led him to the great transgression. He was an evangelist out of our church. He wasn't a great preacher as far as content, but he knew how to touch people's hearts. He had tremendous responses to his preaching. Best youth speaker as far as seeing good results with teenagers that I knew of. He had a great interest in police work. In fact, he got me into being a sheriff's chaplain. And as time went on, he did a little more police work and a little less preaching. And I noticed him slipping. And I talked to him. And I pointed out some things. He said, no, no, no. No, you misunderstood that. No, everything's fine. It's all right. Got a job. Small police department outside of Pontiac, Michigan. Later on, became the chief. Got a female partner. Don't, don't you, you idiots, having somebody you call a work wife. If you had a brain, it'd be lonesome. Stupid. Yeah, you work with people. Don't, don't ever take a relationship that God has ordained and translate that <clears throat> into a secular work relationship. Well, he became her partner. 
divorced his wife. We had to deal with it in our church. I went to see him over near Carson City, Michigan, where he was serving a nine-year sentence for having been evil in his relationship with his 15-year-old stepdaughter. He never said, I'd like to stop being a cop and start being a convict. He never said, I want to stop being a preacher and start being a pedophile. No, it didn't happen like that. It was with this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And he never listened and he couldn't be instructed and he didn't pay attention. And presumptuous sins had dominion over him and led him to the great transgression. See, what we do is we think they're little and they don't matter. So we excuse them. What we do is we think, well, I may be a little imperfect in this area, but I do so well over here. I've confessed this and I've dealt with that. There's a little place we know God wants us to change. We know it displeases him. Maybe doing so, maybe doing so would embarrass us. Maybe doing so would, would indicate that our spouse had been right about something for a long time that we had argued with them about. Maybe doing so would rob us of a secret pleasure. Maybe doing so would make us look bad in somebody's eyes. And so we just excuse it. Presumptuous sins have dominion over us. They lead us the great transgression. The best thing could be said for the two scientists that night in the control room of the nuclear power facility, best way you could say it was they were conducting an unauthorized experiment. Now, despite what you hear in the media, nuclear power is extremely safe and it's quite friendly to the environment. Oh, brother, well, let's say I'm old enough to remember Three Mile Island. Yeah, me too. What they didn't tell you, you can check it out, is the amount of radiation released into the air at that terrible Three Mile Island incident was the equivalent of six dental x-rays. Your dentist puts more radiation into the environment every day than happened to Three Mile Island. Nuclear power is very safe. However... The reactors that power those big plants, those turbines, become very unstable at low speeds. And one night, these guys just decided they'd slow them down a little bit and see what happened. Well, they went past the prescribed speed, and a program in the computer, a fail-safe program, a warning program, had been placed there, and a voice came out and said, Caution, danger, go no further. But they manually overrode it. And they slowed it down a little more. 
And again, they heard caution, danger, go no further. They overrode that and slowed it down again. Caution, danger, go no further. And I read that six times came that warning, caution, danger, go no further. You'll understand the enormity of their behavior when I tell you that they were Russian scientists. And the power plant where they were conducting their unauthorized experiment was in Chernobyl. And they caused the greatest nuclear power failure and the greatest industrial accident in the history of the world. I wonder how many times the Spirit of God has said to us, caution, danger, go no further. Lord, I don't know what it is in any life. Some of us won't know until you begin to deal with us now because it was a secret sin, one that we thought was okay and you're going to reveal to us. One that other people might seem to have no trouble with, but you're going to deal with us about it. Some of us said, no, we try to put it aside, sweep it under the rug. But please do your work. The very best I know I've done what you want me to do tonight. Would you do what I cannot do, could never do? That work that you've reserved for your spirit to convince us of sin. To bring to light the hidden things of darkness. To help us be unequivocally aware of the presumptuous sin. To deal with it. Keep us back from presumptuous sins. Lord, let them not have dominion over us. Help us then to be upright and to be innocent from the great transgression. Help it to be so, Lord. In Jesus' name, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.